how do they do it all they take the road less traveled and that becomes a source of inspiration to everybody else in this podcast i want to acknowledge and thank our knowledge partners the society for human resources management which is the voice of everything which is important in the world of work our other knowledge partner is tagd that is t a g g d a digital ready platform that makes talent acquisition on demand a reality and me i am abhijit bhadri i work with organizations and leaders on their leadership talent and culture this is just the subject of a book that i've recently written which is called dreamers and unicorns i also coach individuals who are navigating shifts in their career hi everyone welcome to season 2 of dreamers and unicorns and this is the time when i'm going to introduce you a very very interesting guy uh, he goes by the name of pk we'll figure out what that pk stands for but uh, what makes him an interesting guest to talk to is the fact that here is a guy who has his foot in uh, dubai as well as uh, the silicon valley as well as india so that's a interesting perspective that he brings to the table prashant kumar gulati pk for short is a tech innovator he's an early stage investor and primarily interested in the area of innovation and exponential technology entrepreneur and intelligent communities my god this got the most number of adjectives i've ever introduced anybody with uh, pk give me one of these that you want to pick as a starting point to explain to people what exactly do you do abhijit bhai the best way is to have just one objective in life and i hope i continue having that and that is being curious so i've been curious i want to remain curious and i'm still curious and i hope i am equally curious 10 years 15 years or whatever till the end of my life so i think that's the only thing and then the rest of the things only follow so we start with uh, you know what piqued your curiosity actually in this whole world of investing and uh, you know funding early stage uh, startups technology exponential stuff where does that come from well it comes from uh, entrepreneurship like i was an early entrepreneur i started my first business when i was still studying you know i started a thesis printing business when i was still uh, studying and which paid for the first uh, desktop that i bought for myself and when you look at it from that perspective you start realizing you know you start working early you start finding out what life is all about did a series of uh, entrepreneurial uh, you know kind of journeys before i became an investor the realization was that you like the adrenaline of building companies of building ideas and converting ideas into viable ventures once you started doing that it becomes an addiction after a while you probably can't or won't or are not in a position of keep doing it yourself so then what do you do you find the best people to work with you know get secondary adrenaline like working with smart entrepreneurs and founders 
and help them build their dreams. So that's how it started. And finally, a few years ago, I started doing investment, uh, let's say repetitively. And, um, you know, somebody called us angel investors, somebody called us early stage investors. And I still don't see myself as a formal investor, but far more involved investor. And, uh, you know, what is more fun? I mean, do you enjoy doing the stuff yourself as an entrepreneur? Is that a bigger uh, thrill than to actually grow multiple um, invest, uh, multiple businesses? Which of them is greater fun? So there's always this temptation of doing more than one thing at the same time. And I've seen this in many people. I've seen this in entrepreneurs. I've seen this in seasoned entrepreneurs. Like people are doing a startup and then they're doing something else on the star side. And by the way, this... So truthfully, human beings do have the capacity to multitask, one. They also have the tendency to multitask because different brains and different people have different thresholds of uh, attention. So sometimes they do need to have their attention diverted by other things. Now, on the other hand, if I put my VC hat, like I would basically grill a founder and uh, an entrepreneur basically forcing him literally to have a focus in terms of the company that he's working on. You know, if you look at unicorns, mm -hmm. there are only two people on record who have built multiple unicorns at the same time. Who are You know, Elon Musk. Uh-huh. You know, and the second is uh, Twitter and uh, Square at the same time. So if you look at it, there are just two people, Jack Dorsey, who's done that. So when you total that up, that's two people. And if you go back in time, there's another one who's not with us anymore, is Steve Jobs, mm. who was building Pixar and, you know, Apple at the same time. So if you look at it, it's, it, it is a difficult job to do that, but it's not an impossible job. And then traditional way of thinking actually gives, you know, major emphasis on things like uh, focus and things like uh, being dedicated to delivering one promise that you started. So again, you know, without being, uh, you know, pedantic, most of us, when we put our investor hats, will push people to kind of deliver what they're working on. At the same time, there are people who can possibly do things, but they're far rarer than, I, you know, than we think. Multitaskers are uh, rare. You know, who are successful? Let's put it that way. Also, Abhijit, the, the difference also is in the size of the task, correct? Mm. Like considering that we have about 30 odd unicorns in India. So building two unicorns will be difficult for multiple people. I think it is also a factor of getting the right kind of investors who are investing in your company, giving you the space, doing that. That also is a factor. All these things also come with the maturity of the ecosystem where people are ready to take risks which are larger than what they're used to usually. I'm going to, you know, talk to you about the one other quality I've, uh, you know, now known you for a couple of years. And one of the things that always fascinates me about you is uh, the size of your, uh, uh, you know, network across India, Dubai, Silicon Valley. One common name that pops up, whether I'm talking to, you know, somebody from the field of music to somebody who is building, a, you know, an aircraft or something. And there's one common name, which is PK. So how do you go about doing that? What makes you do this? So using the same example, do you think when you sort of have so many friends and all, do you really have any deep 
relationships or is that uh, you know few deep relationships plenty of uh, shallow ones how do you look at it i think you know depth of relationships is functionally depending on reality mm-hmm. so i start with curiosity so curiosity gives me the wit when you're curious about things curious about diverse things and curious about things which you don't know much about i think that makes you you know kind of go out and put this quest out for good people or smart people so this is something which i have always done and from the time when i as far as i can remember i always used to do things which made me curious and which were usually not what my other classmates would do and that started getting me in touch with people who were different who were not from your own field of work so while i was supposed to be doing my, you know my engineering my masters in computer science i was also running spikmake which was a completely classical music organization at the same time so when you look at from that so that actually gave me i think a base of actually being open to diversity of ideas and diversity of thought now going deeper into relationships is something which i think is mutual you know relationships work when both sides feel that the relationship is worth keeping so the only way that will work is i can have a rolodex there are tons of people and that's why i do not like the word networking mm-hmm. you know i think networking is not the word which actually gets you deep relationships because in networking the biggest story is the other side knows that you're doing it for the sake of networking and that's why the relationship can never be deep sure sure you know so if you have a relationship where you have if you have a rolodex which has 10000 people in it it doesn't mean anything actually and then yeah then you mass mail the 10000 people i think you, the response will tell you how many of them are real or not so you have to build value to it you have to bring something to the table for that relationship to sustain and continue my personal view and my personal aim is to bring something to the table like if you look at it from that perspective and if if you start looking at what my dad used to say do give you know there's relationships are give and take but give comes before the take mm-hmm. so if you look at it from that perspective you start seeing depth happening in relationships the second thing is you have to if you want to keep the relationship alive you need to keep the contact alive so you need to be in touch so i make that effort to do that and be it um, any part of the world where i spend substantial amount of time so be it uh, dubai where i live or india where i go exceptionally often when uh, pre covid days every month i would be there and uh, be it silicon valley which is an area where i have spent very good quality time and i have you know some of my best relationships and some of my best investments is a place where i actually make the effort of being curious and learning so all these places i do claim that i have great friends and when you reach a point where it's difficult for people to say where you live like every place looks familiar i think you've done something right <laughs> uh, i'm always curious to figure out are there signs that tell you that here is a person who is born to be an entrepreneur Well one of the things that uh, PK really talks about is that you have to manage different kinds of polarities so on one hand you have to have a curious mind which means many ideas many experiments and many friends but also that you also once you've decided that you're going to work on something you need to have really deep focused execution otherwise those ideas never fructify 
One of the other ideas that I really liked is um, building a diverse network. So, for example, PK talks about his time while he was studying computers. Uh, he was also involved in SPICMECI, which is um, an organization which used to stand for Society for a Promotion of Indian Classical Music Among the Youth. I think that's what it was. So Spick McKay, that was the um, organization PK was a part of. So computers and music. And the other idea I really think that he talks about really well is at a conference, don't hang around with friends. Meet strangers because those are the places where you can grow your ideas. And another thing that I liked what PK talks about is think about give and take. But in give and take, give comes before take. What a brilliant idea. And I made a note of that one specifically. So let's get on to the next part of the conversation. And, uh, uh, you know, when you look at your relationship with various people across, is there a particular thing that, uh, you know, you would look at a person and say, this guy is going to make a good entrepreneur. What would that trait be? What is a good entrepreneur like? Because you have worked with many people. You've been one. You mentor plenty of them. Uh, and you're involved in organizations like Thai, which I know you played a very active role from the early times. What is it that makes for a successful entrepreneur? So if I have to narrow this down to one skill, the biggest skill a successful entrepreneur has is coachability. A person who has eyes and ears open and is learning every day. And the worst trait could be knowing everything. If you have somebody who's a Mr. Know-all, would probably not be successful. So coachability of somebody who actually takes in inputs from all the people they come in contact with or all the people that they work specifically and closely with and take the advice of the advisors, investors, supporters that you have and actively go out and get more and more such people in your network are the people who succeed the most. You know, if you look at some of the, you know, largest successful, you know, entrepreneurial companies, a very large number of the people who started those companies did not have domain knowledge when they started. Give me an example of that. So, Brian Chesky did not work in a hotel before he started Airbnb. It was a disaster. Yeah. So, if you look at from, go, go around the table, like, you know, and you suddenly start realizing, look at, look at our people, like people who started... Uh, you know, Vijay Shekhar Sharma. Vijay Shekhar Sharma was not a financial or fintech company guy. You know, in fact, I think one of the biggest success stories for such outliers is the fact that they don't carry baggage of uh, the liability. You know, you know, systems makes us subservient. So when you're a part of a system, you start living in the box. So you don't test the, bo the boundaries of that system. So if you're a banker, you tend to follow the rules rather than break the rules. So you will build an organization which will probably bend the rules, but never break the rules organization. On the other hand, if you're an entrepreneur, you start asking questions like, okay, fine. Why can't I do this? Let me do this and let somebody come and stop me. That's when I'll stop. Let somebody come and prosecute me. That's what it is. Look at the example of Uber. You know, they broke all the rules. They were doing things which they knew were wrong. But if the taxi companies had been ex in existence for years, they, they, never, they never broke the rule. They tested the, or they would go and be aggressive, but aggressive limit was not going out and getting every guy who had a car in the US to start driving as a taxi. 
So that is a bigger issue. So I think one of the bigger traits that you have to have is to have this, this, this ability to look beyond the lines. And that is something which, which is, and for that, you need to be somebody who's, who's learning all the time. You know, have your eyes and ears open, be open to advice, be open to learning. Yeah, of course you need to have your, you'll get a lot of crap advice too. So you need to be careful of what you actually take in and take out. So you need to be a good filter. But the thing is that the ears should be open more than the mouth should be open at the time when you're building something. So when you look at your own style of learning, describe a typical day of your life. I mean, maybe you could contrast the pre-COVID and the COVID kind of a scenario to know how it would change. But, you know, what you would describe as learning part of it, I'm just really interested in that. What is your style of learning? So my style of learning is to, to surround myself or connect myself to as wide variety of people as possible. And why would they want to talk to you? Well, I'm sure like uh, similar people attract similar people in the sense of a good example. For example, I'm a hardcore TED guy. Like I started TED, you know, attending TED many years ago as a curious, like gawky-eyed guy who ended up there. You know, the first thing I was told, you know, they used to have something at that time called the hosts. And the hosts were people who'd been there for a few years, especially kind of mentoring the first time attendee. So when you came there, one of the advice that I was given was like, listen, don't spend time with friends, which was a very counterintuitive advice that why wouldn't I talk to my friends? They said, you know what? Your friends are your friends anyway. You know them. So when you come into a place where you knew, know very few people, your tendency is to actually like go towards or gravitate towards the people you know, the familiar. So what will happen is you'll actually make a, a small group of people who know each other and stay that way and not engage with the rest of the organization, the rest of the, you know, attendees. And that is said that, that you've made it here, that Ted has allowed you to come here and you've come here because there's a whole process of selection of audience. They curate the audience that you reach this point and believe we know that you are an achiever as is everybody else around you who's here. So every chance you get, you sit around with people you don't know, introduce yourself and talk to people, you will end up knowing a wide variety of people. And Abhijit, that was a great learning that I learned. And this is 10, 15 years ago. And I started realizing like, you know, people who were talking about shamanism or talking about, you know, a new video on Mars on how do you get satellites to do this or, you know, uh, you know completely crazy ideas about how whales mate or how do you conserve a specific organism on a specific island in the Pacific, which used to look completely alien or completely not my interest situation, suddenly started becoming deeper. You started understanding stuff. You know, I still remember when Al Gore came and did this uh, talk about uh, global warming. The climate change. The climate change, which later became a mission. And it was almost like, it doesn't concern me, you know? And suddenly you started realizing it concerns all of us. Now, this kind of bit, what it does is it starts getting you, you know, into, you know, connected to subjects which you didn't even know you were interested in. Now, if you don't keep this curiosity alive, I don't think you can be an entrepreneur. You will never get a new idea or you'll get the same idea again and again. So, you know, one of the things people always ask me is, how do you find a trend? Mm -hmm. My answer to them 
is if you're following a trend, you're already late. Mm-hmm. You need to be a part of the trend before people realize it's a trend. One of the things I've talked about in my book, Dreamers and Unicorns, is that successful leaders have to have the humility to learn from everyone, even if that person is much junior in the organization. And two is that they have to have the courage to be able to say in public, hey, I don't know the answer to that one. And that is what PK is referring to as coachability, being open to getting advice, learning from others, because you have to look beyond the boundaries. Innovation always happens at the fringes. Even if there is no immediate relevance, learn about it before it starts trending, because if you are following a trend, you are probably already too late. One thing you could look out for, which really caught my attention in the latter part of the conversation was that how an idea from chemistry can be used to solve a problem that comes up in LinkedIn. That's a real interesting one. Listen to that. So let me give you an example. Everybody is talking about like, you know, every day I get a pitch of somebody doing a fintech venture in some kind of a wallet and things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I always tell people like, listen, there'll always be people who'll say, I'll build a new wallet and I'll do it differently. But guess what? There are already so many wallets, you know, there is so many, you know, things which are happening in fintech, unless you have a very drastically different idea. There is no exponential difference between your idea and what has already happened. If you ask anybody, ask a guy, what are the trends in fintech? See what the answers people tell you. They'll still tell you stuff which has been done a thousand times before. But guess what? Because more people are now trying to do it, it appears to be a trend. Who are the people who made the maximum amount of money in terms of investing in the right people? People who invested in the first one and the second one. Mm -hmm. Correct? Yeah. They did it before the trend, correct? But I would also argue, uh, PK, that, uh, you know, Google was not the first search engine. It was the 14th search engine. And yet they were the guys who got it right. Um, So how would you or is that an exception to the rule? So remember, there's always uh, innovation excellence and there's execution excellence. They're two things which are completely different. You know, Apple is a great example of execution excellence. Mm -hmm. iPad you know, the iPhone, all of them are not primary products in the sense they did not start the class. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Correct. Ericsson was doing phones with screens before iPhone came out. Okay. Sure. iPad or MP3 players, iPod or sorry, iPod or MP3 players existed. Sure. Microsoft had one called Zoom and all all of that. So they, they existed, correct? In fact, it was a situation where you had Chinese players which were far cheaper and you could do stuff with them, correct? Go for tablets, go for iPads, go for iPads. Tablets Mm -hmm. existed. In fact, Bill Gates was the first guy to show that big, you know, that tablet operating system, remember? Yeah. And you realize now the market has completely taken because that is what I call execution excellence. There'll be people who'll come in, they'll consolidate, they'll they'll do it better, they'll focus on only, in fact, some cases it's actually very intelligent because what they do is they do not spend the time and the effort and the money required to create a class educate people that this is something which could be done Mm -hmm. come in a bit later and create an exceptionally executed solution for that class so i think this example and i get this all the time google was the 21st you know search engine kind of example all the time but it does not mean that you have to fund the 20 search engines in between too, correct? Right. What happened to those 19 which happened in between? So my point of view is like, okay, fine. People will learn more and the 21st will execute it better. 
that will happen. But is that trend that we are talking about? Mm. That's not trend. Sure. Correct? That's what I'm trying to say. So people who are trend watchers, in my opinion, are the audience, in my opinion. They are the guys who pump up. They are the, the, they are the, they are the fanboys who make this, you know, that genre more popular. They are not the Beatles. They are not the Beatles. Um, you know, when you, you've you been involved in some of these innovative uh, global startups, you're part of the future you know, foundations in Dubai as well. What makes you believe that this is a technology that is going to grow? You know, it's now a dreamer. It's going to become a unicorn to use the language of the book. By the way, do you read the book and, you know, what was your take on it? So, so I'll answer them in sequence. So... There is no way of saying this will become a unicorn or this will. There is no. There is no foolproof way of doing that. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about like you know what founders. I think the founder and the execution team also makes a very exceptional difference in a particular technology or a particular idea becoming successful. We talked about coachability before. Uh, I think uh, the, the 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 focus once you decide or once you find your niche you know, to focus and just not take no for an answer and go. And the second thing which I see is team, like people who are singular or one-man shows usually have difficulty doing large-scale executions, you know, while again, at this point, I usually get challenged saying, hey, what about Elon Musk? And hey, what about Vijay Shekhar Sharma? What about singular founders or Mark Zuckerberg? You know, those kind of things come in. But again, we'll go back to the same answer, in my opinion, saying that, you know what, there takes all kinds. But it is exceptionally important that if you're going for a very large task or a big, you know, solution play, you need to, you can't become a general without having an army. You need to have an army of people, people who believe in your mission, people who believe in what you're building. All those people are essential for you to actually be able to do that. So if you're able to do that or not, is going to be something which, will also make a difference between will you be able to make a substantial, viable, large, talked about, popular, sizable business or not. When you look at the Silicon Valley success, and I kind of think of in the example of the book that I was asking you, that, uh, you know, it is really dreamers, few of them become unicorns. Then you take the unicorns, very few of them become market shapers. And market shaper is a concept. The Silicon Valley is a market shaper. It started to create this whole notion of entrepreneurship, glamorized it so that many more people begin to follow. And uh, it also, at the same time, uh, you know, inspires many other people. What is going to be the next place where uh, this kind of entrepreneurship is going to thrive? You know, and what was that success? Everywhere. You know, I don't think, and this is the snake oil, the Silicon Valley snake oil that every consultant has sold to every country in the world. Like, you know, I sit here in Dubai and Dubai has been, uh, you know, the beneficiary of a lot of people coming here and trying to make Silicon Valley version one and Silicon Valley version two and three and four and five. I think there's more and more realization that, you know, you'll make your Silicon Valley, but it will not look like Silicon Valley. You know, you'll make your own versions of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. I personally think, um, you know, Bangalore is an exceptionally uh, successful entrepreneurial city. Mm -hmm. But is it Silicon Valley? No, it's not. Nope. It's learned some stuff from Silicon Valley. It's learned a lot of stuff from itself. You know, people inside have created a culture and, you know, 
uh, a structure how entrepreneurship happens. Let me give you an example, Chennai. You know, Chennai is a very uh, kind of uh, unusual uh, unicorn creation story. Mm -hmm. Zoho. Zoho. Zoho, good example. Sure. Fresh desk, fresh yep. desk, charge B. But it's uh, incorporated in US. No, that's a, that's a that's a completely different story. We'll talk about it, and that's a very um, yeah, important point that I personally believe the Indian government in India needs to hear. But that's a separate story. Why they incorporate in the U.S. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, let's talk about where they came from, and why did they come from there? Because Chennai used to be the typical outsourcing destination when I was doing my earlier startup in India. You know, in the call center space, we were the early guys there. You know. A customer first, which later became Aegis PPO. So there was, Chennai was known as the back office space. HSBC and large corporations used to have uh, you know, back offices there because of the traditional way you had the people who were diligent. You, know, you could put up very large, you know, similar skilled people together. All these things gave rise to, you know, and this led in a later date to something similar to these companies coming out because they used those skills to their advantage. Uh, a few years ago, you know, I was listening to Girish Matraboom and he talked about how they were thinking about that Chennai could spawn a trillion dollar economy on its own right, like in the sense startups which were there. Like if you look at you already have three uh, unicorns coming out of the same almost seed, okay, mm -hmm. and then grow bigger. So I don't think Silicon Valley is what you need to replicate. Silicon Valley has exceptional things that they've learned and executed on and basically made into a process so that you have this assembly line going in and out. So what are, what are those ingredients that would make um, this kind of stuff happen? So one of them is obviously the quality of people. It attracts the kind of people. What, I, what we were talking about early, the curious, the crazy, the outliers, they tend to, tend to kind of gravitate there because they get respect there. They get recognition there. So if you start creating societies which start actually recognizing its, its, its outliers and its leaders who don't fit the original model of standing in front of a microphone and whipping a cloud into a frenzy like Anita, but could be different, like we start having an open mindset of recognition for those people, you'll see a lot of people will stay where they are or stay closer to something which is not a Silicon Valley. Okay. That is one big thing and which gets crazy people and people are not, you know, kind of against experimenting with different kinds of things. Now, if you see it in the last few years, innovation has come from areas which are completely divergent and not just adjacent. Traditional research used to be adjacent research, like you would go step by step. Now, suddenly you find crazy people picking up an idea or a skill that was used in a completely diverse area and brought into a, a different area. A good example for that, for example, is big data. Everybody talks about big data, big data, big data, big data, big data. One of the first areas where big data was used, okay? And from there, people were poached by people like the LinkedIn's and all that to actually start working on their data to get insights was pharma. So pharma industry used to use big data to actually reduce the number of candidates that was viable, that could be possibly viable as drugs. Mm -hmm. The clinical trial. Not clinical trials. For example, you wanted to research and find a drug. Okay. So 
you know, the nature is so great. If you look at organic chemistry, you could have an infinite number of options in terms of chemicals. Right. You know, now how do you narrow them down? You know, each chemical will take like years of research and billions of dollars to research to before it becomes a drug, correct? And if you had a billion such things, you'd multiply that by that and you suddenly realize how many trillion years it will take for us to research those chemicals, correct? Sure. So how do you narrow them down? So you start narrowing them down with pattern matching. So if, for example, if this radical goes to this particular position, it becomes a poison or it behaves like a certain way. So you start reducing them. You use this to reduce and come to a, a finite number of possible candidates that you can use for things. Okay. Now, somebody realized that you could use this kind of technology or data to bring this knowledge into something like a LinkedIn database and start analyzing various people and, you know, kind of patterns like these kind of people go there and how do they grow and stuff like that. So most of the big data people have come from other industries and that was great learning. And guess what? It has now become on its own a force multiplier. This big data AI insights, you know, industry as a whole can be layered on top of any industry, yeah. any business, yes. any, you know, kind of scientific, uh, you know, subject that you can think of. So when you look at that, this is where, you know, so people in Silicon Valley are not averse to putting pharma with IT, you know, that kind of scenario, people mm -hmm. are ready to do that. You know, in the case of India, I still remember we were so rigid that we could not even study economics with math when I was studying. You either were, you know, doing math or you were doing economics, you were doing engineering or you were doing this. So we were very siloed, it was very restrictive. And we used to think about that, like, you know, so if you look at an American university for years, you could pick up any subject with any subject. I mean, just that diversity. India, even now, you know, in a, in a very respectable uh, institution, um, they were saying that, you know, if you teach HR, you can't be talking about uh, digital technology because then that's part of the tech department. Correct. Uh, so you have to just limit yourself to HR and not talk about HR tech. Correct. So cross-disciplinary thinking you know, the pattern that I see in what you talked about, all of it is really, whether it's your own, it's about really matching uh, things which did not seem to go together, you know, bringing that together, uh, whether it's an idea, your friends, your reading, whether, you know, technology, and that seems to be the uh, trick that turns a dreamer into a unicorn. Is that a good perspective? Possibly. I think it, I think if it is not the only thing that does, it is surely one of the things I would say has to be there in some way or form in the person. The person, the whole idea of looking wider than everybody else is a minimum requirement in my opinion. You need to be seeing, uh, you know, an aim like, Krish, like, like Arjun, which other people did not or could not see. So those things are essential to do. So Silicon Valley, ending our thought on the Silicon Valley, Valley, the second big advantage of there is money, is the risk-taking capability. And which is something which does not exist anywhere else. Money from all around the world ends up there. Mm. Okay, and I probably that comes from the first part because they have been able to demonstrate that they can make use of money or the risk capital far better than anybody else can do. So that is the other thing which happens. Like, you know, you have situations where people would give you money for experimentation. I don't see that happening any part of the world, irrespective of what people talk about angel investing. We are far more scrutinizing. We are far more, you know, we expect early stage startups to show far 
you know, deeper metrics before they are even like, so it's like asking a, a newborn baby to go find its own food kind of scenario. We still have that. It's getting better, don't get me wrong. But that is essential for experimentation and encouraging people and creating an environment where, you know, smart people can experiment is a very essential part of what we do. We have to learn that. We have to do that. So I'm saying we need to encourage that. We need to create that enabling environment where people can actually say, okay, fine, I'm going to dedicate the next six months to learn this. And we need to create an enabling environment. The guy does not need to take loans and, you know, go under debt to do that. And also I would add to that, you know, the ability to do things which don't necessarily have an immediate ROI. You know, if, if you kind of really start looking at, uh, and I see the, a lot of that happening even in organizations, even with employees. You know, a person wants to try something. Immediately the question is, what is the ROI? A anything. I mean, even if it is the right thing to do, if you look at it, most organizations, uh, you have to really give an, ex you know, we are going to invest in training these guys to learn about this. But what is the ROI? We are going to do this thing. What is the ROI? So this ROI obsession sometimes can be a killer of innovation. You know, one of the reasons I decided to speak to PK is that he has a great view of not only what's happening in India and Middle East and Silicon Valley, but he has a great way of piecing together ideas and forming a point of view. So that's what I found to be really interesting. So the thing that I took away is that every city has its own culture. You don't need to replicate what is happening in Silicon Valley. But one thing that I learned from there is Silicon Valley probably offers one of the places where people are comfortable experimenting with their ideas, knowing that there is a great chance it might fail, they will still pursue it. And I think having that freedom and flexibility, even inside an organization, can be a great way to ensure that you have the mind of a VC. Whether you are actually a VC or you're an investor or not, it doesn't matter. Being able to pursue multiple projects, being able to pursue them even without worrying about the immediate ROI, because in the long run, many of these things will connect, but don't have to wait for that. You can start being innovative today. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it. We are going to be back next Wednesday with yet another edition of Dreamers and Unicorns 2.0. Until then, stay connected, stay curious. Goodbye. So don't forget to tune in every Wednesday. Dreamers and Unicorns 2.0 has been produced by HT Smartcast. To give it a listen, log on to htsmartcast.com or haan, aray, sunye zara nain zariye se. Kya? Phir milte hai. Jaldi. This was an HT Smartcast original. HT Smartcast.